I'm Linnea. And I like death by DVD. It's a statement. Do you ever fantasize about listening to Hank? You are listening to Death by DVD, and I am your host, Hank, the world's greatest, or I guess you should say Dungeon Master. Because on this episode, we creep into the dungeon of Andy Milligan. Severin released an absolutely decadent box set of Andy Milligan films, and I finally cracked mine open and decided, you know what? We should do these movies one by one on Death by DVD, and thus a new segment is born. Thanks, Severin. Thank you, David Gregory. I cherish not having to come up with new material. But instead of doing the entire box set on one ridiculously long, too long episode, we're gonna do them one by one. Didn't I just say that? So if you don't have the box set, no worries. Don't knock it. Because we're just gonna talk about the movies. That's something that I'm gonna get into now and get into later. It'll probably come up a handful of times throughout this episode. I want to talk about Andy Milligan movies. I want to talk about the movies. I don't so much want to spend a lot of time talking about Andy Milligan. And of course, how can you talk about Andy Milligan movies without talking about the actual guy himself? We are, and we will, and there'll be plenty of discussion and discourse on him plenty of times. I'm going to stop and I'm going to talk about things I know and why I think certain scenes are done ways just like every other episode of Death by DVD. But I really don't want to spend a lot of time digging into the history and the life of Andy Milligan. What I mean by that is a lot of things that he presents and does on screen. Sure, I'll take some time here and there to talk about certain things, but the point of all this isn't to go deep into his psyche and to do uh, an authoritative biography on him, because there already is a pretty great authoritative biography on him. The Ghastly One by Jimmy McDonough. It's extensive. It dives deep into his history, why he was the way he was. Very, very rich, very, very interesting stuff, but it's it's widely available right now, and I'm going to quote Stephen Thrower because he said it the best. Thanks to Jimmy McDonough's biography, The Ghastly One, we've learned more about Andy Milligan's tormented childhood, his sex life, and his unguarded views on men and women than we have about David Cronenberg, George Romero, and Wes Craven combined. So what more am I going to add? If I've read the book, I'm just going to be telling you things that I've read in the book, and if you've read the book, then there'll be no big point in this. And if you don't know anything at all about Andy Milligan, now you have an offer to hear somebody talk about his movies and not so much him. Because Andy Milligan is one of those names that usually when you say it, people boo and they hiss and they turn away and they're angry about it. It's like you brought a cross to a vampire's face or something. People fucking hate Andy Milligan. And I can understand it. I I, I can get it. I'm not one of those people. I'm, I'm one of the very rare freak few that really enjoys Andy. Well, it really enjoys Andy Milligan. Might be a stretch here. I like the guy. I'm interested deeply by his work. I have been since I was a teenager. I think the first Andy Milligan film is the movie we're going to be talking about on this episode. And I saw it. God, maybe I was 15, maybe I was 16 years old. And it stuck with me. Since the first time I saw it, I've always looked for that guy's name. And when I see his name, I know immediately, well, we're, we're going to get into some weird shit here. And that doesn't always mean good. A lot of the times on this program, weird shit usually is like, all right, it's going to get weird. 
it, there's a lot of meanings to that word. So weird shit isn't always the highlight. And when it comes to Andy Milligan, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, sometimes it's in between, it's chaotic. I used this term before, I've used it for several different people, but Andy Milligan's what I like to call a film terrorist, and I'll, I'll talk more about that later, I'll divulge more into what I mean later on. So what I really want to do here is talk about a movie, like every episode of Death by DVD. But we don't always have movies that are made by men quite like Andy Milligan, so that makes it a little bit difficult here. So who is Andy Milligan, if you don't know who he is? He was a film director, he's regarded as the Ed Wood of 42nd Street, whatever the fuck that means. I always thought that was such a weird thing to say. Isn't Ed Wood the Ed Wood of 42nd Street? What the fuck street is the Ed Wood of Ed Wood of? I don't know. It's a weird saying. Andy Milligan is a film terrorist. That's how I would start the biography. He's a director that is regarded for some of the worst films of all time, so I can see where the comparisons come forward with Ed Wood, but there's a different type of bad between these two people. And the point of this episode isn't going into a discourse between Ed Wood, H.G. Lewis, Andy Milligan the differences between them, and or the comparisons. It does not matter, that's not what I want to talk about. Because I want to talk about the first movie on this box set. And like I said, it doesn't matter if you have the box set. You can find these movies anywhere. Now, it would be really cool if you got the box set through Severin. We don't get anything out of that, but I enjoy it if you're interested in it. Severin obviously has done a lot of great work to create this and to put it out there for the world to enjoy. But you can easily find Andy Milligan's films. We're going to talk about... <laughs> Sixty-eight, directed by Andy Milligan, written by Hal Sherwood, who also appears on the film briefly, and, of course, Andy Milligan. We should have a counter on this episode for how many times I'm going to say Milligan, Andy, or just Andy Milligan. It's going to be a lot. And I want to add that it's not that I don't feel his work isn't widely covered. I'm not also uncovering new grounds by talking about this movie. I easily uh, could do the same thing by discussing his life and his biography as I will be doing by discussing this film. It's been reviewed hundreds of times, thousands of times. It's, it's pretty widely well-known. It's a video nasty. But you gotta start somewhere, and I really do think this is one of the best places to start when it comes to Andy Milligan, not just because it's the first movie on the box set, but because it's a pretty palatable movie for Andy, and that is still a stretch. So I think I've talked about not talking about Andy Milligan enough for me to actually begin talking about Andy Milligan and the movie. You guys know how it goes. So let's start at the beginning. The total incoherent bizarre beginning. The total nonsense opening scene was shot after the movie was finished and tacked on, and there are some discrepancies as to why. Either the producer felt that the movie needed it or longtime Al Adamson producer Sam Sherman suggested to Andy while running the advertising for the film that he should add a bit more horror to the story and shoot additional footage to turn it to more from a Victorian drama thriller into a horror picture. Sam or the producer, it doesn't really matter. Additional footage was shot in the summer of 1967, the bulk of the film done in January, February, and the absolutely insane opening scene was one of those shots. The lack of charm doesn't hit you immediately. What does is shaky camera. Milligan used an Aricon 16mm news camera to shoot this, and though uncomfortable close-ups will prove to be a trademark of his, that's partially because of the Aricon. That also explains a lot of the reasons with his sound, because the way these things work was pretty much sound on film. How later the home video Betamax cameras would be. This was sort of the precursor to that. Big news cameras. Not what you really would want to film a movie with. You really couldn't see much of what you were shooting, so the framing for everything is batshit. Some would say incompetent, but there is a method to the madness. Well, not really. 
This movie is just madness. There isn't exactly a method. But the madness itself is just bizarre enough, and competent or not, it works for its own benefit. This first scene introduces us to a hunchback character named Colin that we will get to know a little bit more later. And for absolutely no reason, Colin brutally slays two people who just stumbled upon the island. In what I will say, wacky, I think that's the best way to put it, a wacky display of eye-gouging violence. And this means absolutely totally nothing to the story because the actual story hasn't even begun yet. When I show people this movie, and boy howdy do I love to show people this movie because I'm fucking insane, it's right around here, like like a whole three minutes into the movie where you can see just from the look in people's eyes that they have suddenly realized, oh, this is not what I expected. This is not what I was explained this movie was going to be about. And though this little bit really doesn't have anything to do with the movie whatsoever, it really lets you see the style of what we're going to be getting into, or lack thereof. This movie really marks the first horror film for Milligan. Prior to this, he had been working with more erotic and with very openly gay avant-garde experimental films, things that, unfortunately, in the 1950s and 60s were nowhere near as accepted as they are today, so it made it very hard for him to get mainstream work. Not that I don't, I mean, this again, I'm going back to something I said just a few moments ago, I don't really want to speculate and talk too much on Andy Milligan because there's a bunch of stuff that you can read about him, but I don't even know if mainstream work was exactly what he wanted. That Before getting into being a filmmaker, Andy Milligan was the stage guy, and he is one of you know the, the forefathers of what's called the off-off-Broadway play, and he was doing very avant-garde, very sexual-based stuff, very free-spirited sexual-based stuff long before its time, long before people were even starting to get hip to the sort of concepts that he was into. And he was into the early S&M scene, a lot of stuff that he incorporated into his plays, and when you move into his films, we'll talk about this in a little while, you can really see that coming forward and his previous work coming forward. But, I mean, Andy Milligan wasn't just an artist. Andy, I mean, he was, but he wasn't at the same time because he did absolutely everything. He, he did everything for his movies, wrote, direct, produced, shot, everything, edited Every single aspect of what you could do to make a movie, Andy Milligan was a one-man army, but before that, the guy really did everything. He's one of those guys that could just probably sit and tell you a thousand things about a thousand things because he's done absolutely every single one of them. He didn't waste a second of his life. And that shows up in his films. That shows up in this film, if we ever actually get to talking about it. I keep getting sidetracked. But Milligan is a really fascinating subject. It's hard to have a discussion, especially with yourself, about this guy, and when I decided that this was going to be the thing to do, that I wanted to go into the, the not just the box set, but I wanted to make a new segmented show about the, the career of Andy Milligan, about the work of Andy Milligan, I wanted to shine some light on it, maybe get people to watch things that they otherwise would have never looked at, or things that people have seen before and they absolutely hate, maybe they'll listen to this and look at it again. You can't but help really talk about the guy because you look at the work and, and we've not even really started getting into the movie. We've got this first wacky scene we've discussed and I'm already stumbling upon going back and talking about Andy himself. You hear it with a lot of people, but he truly is almost more fascinating than his body of work. And people say that about Orson Welles, but I, I, I fucking dare to say Andy Milligan is far more interesting than Orson Welles. And... God damn it, man, his work is a little bit more interesting to me, personally. You know, I, I have no problem with Touch of Evil. I think Orson Welles is, as everybody does, the greatest, you know, he's so good. Action awesome, please. You just do anything? No, it's a, sorry, cut. 
102, take two. Ah, the French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. There is a California champagne by Paul Masson, inspired by that same French excellence. It's fermented in the bottle, and like the best French champagne, it's vintage dated. So Paul Masson. Rosebud, yibbity bah! Yeah, I know. You know, I'm not gonna shit talk him on a Andy Milligan show, but I'm not gonna shit talk Andy Milligan you all a little bit. Well, yeah, I'm gonna end up having to at some extent to some points on this this episode and many many others. But that's not my my gain. It's not my point here. If oh God, we're so off subject. If that makes any sense, back to the goddamn movie Milligan Madness. Sheer unholstered Milliken madness. That's what this episode and all the others will end up being. But don't let all this stuff fool you, because there is always pretty much a very visible thread through all of Andy Milligan's work. Misogyny, betrayal, incest, pretty much the evil of humans and their nasty, nasty nature. Also, Andy led a movie with dialogue and not action. Tits and gore and dialogue. And always close-ups of it all. A hunchback who, by the way, later on in the movie gets a bodacious set of chompers. He brutally murders a man that's on the island. He tears his eye out, which happens to be a hard-boiled egg, chops a lady's hand off and dices her up into pieces in a blood-splattered mess, and then he gets the title card. Experience so sensually exciting that it will be the stomach shocker of your life. The ghastly one. I find that hysterical. I, I love this sequence. We get this brutal murder, this mannequin stuffed with guts and gore being chomped up, then the title card. And it's, it's almost cartoonish. I mean, the title card is animated, but the way we move into it and the way it segues into itself, it's just outlandish violence and then splat, the ghastly ones. And it takes the screen over in vivid, gory color. This also was the very first color film for Andy Milligan. A lot of firsts. First horror film, first color film. And then, from gore to boobs, good old Andy Milligan knows how to deliver. And now, finally, we learn, if anything, what this whole ordeal is going to be about. Now, the idea of this movie is simple enough, honestly. You could consider The Ghastly Ones to be a remake of The Cat and the Canary, a much more lewd remake. But it's roughly the same idea as that movie. In The Ghastly Ones, three sisters have to stay three nights in their father's house on a spooky island before his will is read. And The Cat and the Canary is about a bunch of folks who get together 20 years after the death of a millionaire who trusted his family so little he has them wait until the 20th anniversary of his death until they can figure out who gets all of his money. So clearly, hijinks, antics, shenanigans, so on and so forth ensue. So it appears that this would be a melodrama, maybe? Or a thriller? I don't know. We'll find out. So the movie actually begins with one of our main cast, Victoria, who is totally naked, and her husband, Richard. And I feel perhaps Milligan was trying to wash the palette of the first scene that wasn't even intentionally supposed to be there by having a little bit of nudity right off the beginning lets you get into a different feeling. But then again, I might be giving too much credit to Andy Milligan. Right off the bat, it's all close-ups. It's weird, almost upside-down framing, and if you listen very carefully, you can actually hear the camera. You can actually hear at certain scenes Andy Milligan giving direction and saying, I'm gonna cut, I'm gonna pan in, I'm gonna move. Just listen for it. But sometimes that adds to the delight of Andy Milligan. It also greatly annoy you it just depends on what mood you're in or what you're into in general 
I feel the nudity itself is incidental. It's treated pretty much normally. Andy Milligan really wasn't into shooting sex, and I quote, he found it frivolous. Despite a large part of his career actually being sexploitation, he personally was not a fan. It works more, like I said, a palate cleanser, so it's for those that either can't handle or can't get the movie, or it's just something to highlight the violence and the gore. It's not important, but we all know sex sells. And at this point, we get to meet Walter, Richard's brother. You see, in the midst of all this nudity, something actually has happened here. Our character, Victoria, got a letter. Her husband has given it to her, and she finds out that she has to go home for a will reading of her dearly departed father. They don't have the money to go on the trip to New York City to get the will read, so Richard, her husband, has to ask his brother. And a very uncomfortable trademark of Andy Milligan shows up in this sequence, that being incest. <laughs> it's not really a notion of incest. It seems pretty clear that these two brothers have been quite intimate at some point in their lives, one of which is unhappy about it, the other seems to be very, very lustful for it. And at this point, I could dive deep into the history of Andy Milligan and the very strange relationship that he had with his mother, but I'm going to digress gonna stay with the movie, but I've planted the seed in your mind that there is some really weird shit that happened to this guy, Andy, Andy Milligan. So if you're interested in learning more about that, I hope you stay with me as I progressively move through the work of Andy Milligan. And this won't be linear, it's not like the next episode directly of Death by DVD is going to be another Andy Milligan one. This is something that's a new series that's going to long-term run for a few months, and every now and again we'll come back and touch upon Andy Milligan movies. To do this back-to-back-to-back-to-back, to back to back to back, that would be insane. That would be punishment for me, you, everybody. That should be illegal, so don't worry. But oh my, does Andy Milligan love using incest and incestual themes. Incestuist, I guess you should say, themes in his movies. It's uncomfortable. It's probably why he puts them in the movies, to be uncomfortable. And in this scene, guess what? It's uncomfortable. Richard has to ask for his brother while he hotly, is that what you would say? Hotly, he hotly says to him. Yeah, I guess that works. We'll just run with it. He hotly says to him, everything was so much better before you got married. You took a chunk of my heart away. You took a chunk of my life away when you got married to her. And there's a lot more than innuendos to let you, the audience, know watching this that these two guys have had something going on. For what reason? Why is this in the movie? Oh, none. There's no point. It's not in the. It's not there for any other reason outside to make you uncomfortable, which is just something that's a, a current theme with Andy Milligan and his work. It doesn't matter what the story or plot is. Regardless, he's going to add in as much unnecessary stuff to make you uncomfortable as he can. Every constant second when something happens, something more uncomfortable is going to happen right after that. It's just like a domino effect of uncomfortable things. Because that seemed to be his life and his mentality. He was surrounded by discomfort. He didn't seem to enjoy life. He worked constantly, but he didn't really seem to like his existence or anybody else. But we're getting into Andy Milligan, and we need to get back into the movie. The remaining characters are introduced in a very similar fashion, uncomfortable close-ups, the hum of the camera, and very, very unbelievable romance. So we've got three sisters, Victoria, Veronica, and Elizabeth, and their husbands, Robert, Richard, and Donald. And they are all to meet with their late father's lawyer to hear the details of his will. The bulk of this is shot on handheld, it's all close-ups, and it's dialogue-driven. 
fast, sarcastic at times, very, very quick. And you can really see that Milligan is a stage man. Even when shooting a movie, he incorporates absolutely everything he knows into whatever he's doing, so it doesn't matter if it's his knowledge of writing plays or directing plays or if it's knowledge of photography or if it's knowledge of set setting or everything that he knows combined into one. He takes absolutely every single trick in his basket and just does it all. He does all of it. Most people hold back a few things. Most people, okay, I'm going to use this because this is the type of movie I'm making and this is what I'm going to do. No, Andy would just sit down and go, all right, this is what I know and I'm going to do all of it now. Absolutely all of it. We're going to do it right now because this is what I know and this is how you do it. Don't you fucking argue with me. Because Andy Milligan, not to talk too much about the guy because I said at the beginning of the show I wasn't going to talk too much about the guy apparently had a very, very vicious temper and was somebody that you didn't want to quarrel with, that not only did he have a vicious temper, but he would personally attack you. If he was upset with something that you did, he would dig in and he would not let go. He would make sure that you knew you were a fucking piece of shit. Even if you weren't, it didn't matter what the situation was. Many people would call that abusive. Many people would call that unstable. Many people also including me, though. I don't know why I keep saying many people. He was a very abusive and unstable gentleman. Not going to talk too much more about that. Not now, at least, you know. And, and maybe that's the reason I say that, because there is a road to go on here. There's not, like, two or three movies in this box set. There's a handful that we're going to go through. At the end of the episode, I'll let you know how many and the names of them, so maybe you can look them up and see them beforehand if you're interested in that. But that being said, there's a long road for us to travel, and there's a lot of ground to cover. And I personally don't know everything about about him. I know a lot from being a fan over the last two decades of my life or so, but that's about it. That's stuff that I've read here and there. I'll be honest with you, I've not read the Ghastly one. I've not read this amazing book by Jimmy McDonough. I, I would love to. Honestly, I'm still reading Stephen Besant's nine million page book about David Cronenberg's The Brood, and it's brilliant. It's beautiful. It's such a fun book to read, but goddamn, Steve. I think because of you, I've learned more about the Canadian history of film than anything I've learned in high school, but I did go to public school, so there you go. This will be a learning experience for me. And you, because as I uncover things and things make more sense and I see more of his films, because as I said, I've been an Andy Milligan fan for, I'd say, about two decades, but it wasn't ever easy to see his movies. We'd live in an era now that it's easier to see Andy Milligan films than it ever was before. You really had to dig them up, but then when you'd find these movies, they were an atrocious quality. They looked like shit. To some extent, they still do. Severin did a fantastic job, but you're shooting on a 16mm news camera and blowing it up to 35, and then years and years and years, 40, 50 years later, somebody finds your movies and tries to scan them into 4K. There's only so much you can do. Admittedly, they look beautiful compared to how they ever looked before, but it is more than a grain of salt you have to take to get through these movies, to watch these movies. And I'll throw the word incompetent around very lightly, but many of these films were shot incompetently, and that's because they were rushed, and it's for money, pushing out product, trying to get things done. But the volume of his work and the tenacity of which I think is something really that is a testament, no matter if you hate him or not. And I'm not going to, at this time period at least, have any comparison to guys like H.G. Lewis in the volume of their work, or Al Adamson, whole slew of people around the same era that were doing very similar things, 
Andy Milligan does stand out from all of them, and within later episodes, we'll divulge and dive into more of his life and who he was and why he did the things he did and his career. But at the same time, I'm going to have to learn a lot of those things. And what I, I really, really wanted to focus on with this episode was the ghastly ones. I wanted to talk about the movie. And I don't really think there's a lot of... It's not like I'm non-biased, because obviously I'm, I'm going into all of these different categories, and I'm talking about all these different things, but I, I, I like Andy Milligan, and I like this movie, but I don't think there's a lot of just general fucking reviews or discussions about this movie, what happens in this movie, that don't reflect upon him, his personal life, him being Andy Milligan, and what he did as a person. All of it always usually reflects into who he was, and obviously I've gotten into that point several times. We're already detracted talking about Andy as a person instead of the movie. It's difficult. This whole thing, this whole experiment's going to be difficult, but the, the point behind it is at least we all learn something, and we all learn something. I mean, I, I assume if you're listening to Death by DVD, you enjoy learning about film. I enjoy learning about film and talking about it with, with our audience, and that's just what we're doing here. After 12 years, you got to talk about Andy Milligan. You can't do this show for as long as we've done it and not talk about Andy Milligan. It's just that time. So Andy Milligan didn't really seem to have a care for if what he incorporated into the movie worked or not. He, he put everything that he knew how to do into what he was doing. And you know, speaking of incest, the cast of this movie is very incestuous to the films of Andy Milligan in general. Almost everyone that has appeared on screen and will appear on screen have and will in some capacity in the majority of Andy's life work. And I, I mean like all of his films, the entirety of his films. And I think the beginning of the film is the most normal or I guess you could say conventional part of the movie. The characters are introduced, the story gets underway, and we get to see a decadent display of crazy colored Victorian costumes all designed and made by Andy Milligan. And we get to see the vain nature, really, of who our characters are, or rather the beginning of the vain nature. More of that starts to come underway as we get deeper into the movie. When we get to the lawyer's office, if you didn't know we were watching a low-grade drive-in horror movie, you are reminded definitely by the Milligan Militia member. That's what I like to call the reoccurring actors that appear in his films. The Milligan Militia. You get a Milligan Militia member named Neil Flanagan who will appear in several other works of his and we'll discuss those and we'll discuss his amazing performances in those films when the time comes. He plays the lawyer in this movie and his performance here is... is Pretty fantastic. He's caked up in makeup. He's supposed to be 120 years old, something like that. They don't give an age, but ridiculously old guy. It is a loony, over-the-top performance. It's something that I would expect out of Twin Peaks. And again, I kind of think this is a palate cleanser after the character introductions. This kind of takes us back to the more chaotic feeling at the beginning of the film. The movie began in a very, very, very strange way, but it really starts to take off here when the lawyer tells us the three sisters are to stay three days at their father's manor in sexual harmony with their husbands, in part because he never had a good relationship with his wife, their mother, and it being his test for them and their loyalty to his words and the fact that the house needs to feel the love of a happily married couple. And if that's not something obviously deeply personal to the life of Andy Milligan, I don't know what is. And who doesn't put something personal in their art? I mean, that's the point of art. It's obviously going to reflect onto you, but goddamn. 
What a weird point of the movie. This father, who didn't really know his family that well, wants his three daughters and their husbands to stay in his house in sexual harmony and what, just like, fuck? That's weird. That's that's weird, right? Like, that, that's a really weird point to the movie. We drastically are now differing from the cat and canary. <laughs> like I said, a bit more of a lewd remake. Yeah, you know what? When I'm dead, I just want my kids to go back to my house and fuck as much as they can. That's my dream. Well, if you didn't think the movie was weird already with the eye-eating introduction, this has got to be something. And it's 1968. This movie came out in 1968. They shot in 1967. So that's just a weird... I mean, there's nudie cuties. There's sexual comedies at this point. There is a load of gore and subversive horror movies and exploitation, drive-in films, all sorts of stuff. The beginnings of underground pornography and mainstream pornography had begun. It wasn't very uncommon, but... I just want my kids to go fuck. Weird. It's weird. No. <laughs> You're really weird. Why is that the one thing for your will? You For three days, three nights, you guys gotta go out there, have some fun, get it on, sip a little brandy, enjoy yourself. And maybe I've neglected to mention, this is a period piece. This is a Victorian film. So this takes place, so Victorian film in fucking Staten Island, this takes place in like the 1890s. Why? I don't know. It's just an insistence with Andy Milligan, a majority of his films, despite having absolutely no budget to make them, were period pieces. And that just makes it even more weird. It just, it's all so weird. And I don't even know why I'm questioning the, the, the meanings of this movie or why Andy Milligan decided that this was going to be the precursor to all of them having to get together. But that's where we're at. So we have to move forward. So the sisters stay in the house for three nights in sexual harmony with their husbands. And everyone gets the money. The last night, they have to take a trunk downstairs. And if anything funky happens, the eldest heir is left to decide everything. So we have shared a lot of details and a lot of facts. But I want to focus on the movie from here on out. And like I said, we've got the extensive Jimmy McDonough book. We've got Stephen Thrower's Andy Milligan's Venom, which I have quoted from already and may read from a little bit later on and quote a couple more times. There's a very great detailed history of Andy Milligan, his life, who he is. And to get into this movie, we've taken some time to discuss that, which I hopefully think will help the overall discussion that we're about to go on because it's just the movie. From here on out, we're going to talk about the ghastly ones and what happens in the movie. We're going to discuss the plot and the movie. Just to say the word movie one more time. We arrive at the manor, which you may recognize if you're a big Andy Milligan fan because it's his home, Seven Phelps Place in Staten Island, where Andy would shoot this, The Filthy Five, Seeds, Torture Dungeon, and many, many, many more. Here we meet Martha and Ruth, the manor's two maids, and we are reacquainted with the now buck-toothed, ever-delightful hunchback Colin, so in the scenes that we saw at the very beginning of the film at Colin, as I said, those were tacked on and shot afterwards, they lost the buck teeth. The character has these ridiculous buck teeth he wears throughout the entire movie, but the first introduction of him, he doesn't have it, and that is a testament to not only the laziness of Andy Milligan, but the fact that he just didn't give a shit. It also makes it apparent to me that he didn't want those scenes to be in the movie. And how Borsky, who plays Colin, has commented on the subject himself that he and Andy felt much disdain for doing that and didn't want the sequence to be in the movie and it fucked a bunch of stuff up. It was asked for by the production company. Or maybe. So all of our characters have regrouped and then we get to see Colin eat a live rabbit. Mm. Don't 
because, well, that's what hunchbacks do. I guess. I've mentioned the dialogue before, but it's something to note. Milligan makes a villain out of most women in his films, and this is no exception. It's always sharp, and it's always bordering, I guess, what you could say is catty. While the male dialogue always lacks wit. Milligan is often accused of hating women, but Keith Crocker of Cinefear.com says, and I agree, that he really hated everyone and had a general disdain for people but also that many of the female characters are in fact avatars of Andy Milligan himself in the film. Speaking of which, let's get back on track and talk about the movie, damn it. You could say up until the introduction of the lawyer, the movie has a rather lethargic tone. The eye-gouging intro aside, but as Colin munches on the rabbit, obviously the tone changes. This Victorian melodrama by way of Staten Island changes to horror. Bloody, strange, hunchbacked horror. We find out that some sort of plague killed the girl's mother, and Martha, Hattie, and Colin are the only three to remain on the island. Hey, you guys know the Great Staten Island Plague of 1890? Maybe that's a thing. I'm sure somebody will Wikipedia it and prove to me that I don't know anything. Like I said, I went to public schools that don't teach you a lot there. Was there a Great Staten Island Plague that I'm just not aware of? I don't know. There could be. Or Andy Milligan felt that there needed to be some reference to a plague for absolutely no reason in this movie. I'm gonna, I'm gonna lead with that one. And by no means is any of this easy to watch, or is it pleasant. Before Colin makes a snack of the live bunny, he is beaten mercilessly with a belt by one of the maids while he screams and whimpers, and the camera is moving back and forth as if it was all shot on a ship deck in the middle of the ocean. Martha and Hattie refer to Colin as simple-minded, but I prefer crazed hunchback. We later learn why he is the way he is. But Crazed Hunchback still sounds a lot better to me. And a lot of the movie is very, very slapsticky, but none of this is intentional. It's just goofy. It's, it's insane characters that you can't believe, but never once in Andy Milligan's career did he try and do something funny. All of this was very serious, and it was for the point of being very serious. This is a dramatic, thriller, horror-esque movie to him. Absolutely everything mattered. There was no point, no room, no extension of comedy. Can't really believe in any of the characters, but there is some sort of odd, strange magic to that. The movie isn't what you would call aesthetically pleasing, but this specific Milligan I can't look away from as it becomes increasingly weirder and weirder, and the tone changes almost every few minutes. You just have to see what's going to happen next. And it's not that what happens next is shocking or disturbing. What I mean is, what the fuck is Milligan gonna do next? You really can't trust him. I mean, he's capable of doing absolutely everything, but the way he is going to go about doing it is completely backward. Like, for example, using a news camera to shoot a movie. And I'm not entirely sure what type of movie he wanted to make in the first place. We ping-pong back and forth between horror and drama and drama and horror and drama and comedy and dramedy and horror and comedy and dramedies and horror. This is why I call Andy Milligan a film terrorist. He would make a movie because that's what was going on that day. That's what the task at hand was. Who cares what it's about? A Victorian melodrama set in Staten Island? Why the fuck not? Finished script? Who needs that? We need a hunchback, some colorful costumes, and a lot of hard-boiled eggs. That's what we need. Can I offer you a nice egg in this trying time? There's definitely no storyboards. There might not ever actually have been a fucking story. 
aside from the old cat and canary, but we are going nowhere. You do get some good quotes around this point of the movie, though, like, I did not pass you a note, you brazen hussy. But the overall sexual harmony we see, you mostly suffer through because it's not really entertaining. When I mentioned dialogue-driven and no action, I really wasn't kidding. Until suddenly Veronica gasps and says that she felt like a cold hand touched her heart. We have been lost in endless smooching and chatter. One shot, no static, just people talking. Which leaves you, the viewer, like, oh, okay, what in the fuck? Why is it called the ghastly ones? Is there anything ghastly that's ever going to happen? And then, after an ominous music cue, everybody separates and decides that it's time for bed. And then finally, something happens. The gory remains of Colin's snack are discovered in Veronica and William's bed as they prepare for sleep. And a note is found, written well enough, it's obvious the fucking hunchback didn't write it, that reads, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit. Dun dun dun! Who could have left it? I know that we are supposed to believe that it's Colin. But come on, Andy. Come on. Sure, okay, he ate the rabbit and killed those people at the beginning of the movie, but he couldn't have done this. It's, it's just not believable. It's too much of a red herring for it to be believable at all. So the plot thickens. Veronica, apparently, her whole life has had psychic abilities, something that is only mentioned in this sequence and goes absolutely nowhere with the rest of the movie. This makes Victoria worry about the incident earlier and, of course, the dead rabbit, and she says, It feels so strange after all these years of being close. I don't feel close to them now. And she says this to her husband, very, very distraught. And she's now convinced that evil, evil, is afoot. Something evil about the house, the will, something's wrong. But what? What could it be? We find out here that Victoria, the eldest daughter, she wants more. She feels she deserves more than her sisters because she had to take care of them when they were younger. And she, because of that, never got all the things that she wanted. Oh, wah. It's terrible. Dialogue over action. Milligan begins shaping the story from nonsense into a jealous, conniving, gradually entertaining thing, merely with characters interacting just through dialogue. Victoria and her husband discussing resentment, her wanting more, for example. This drives forward what's happening in the movie, but really nothing has happened. We've only had a few jumbled sequences of scenes of these couples kind of smooching on each other in different locations. There's not been any real meat to this. So far in the movie, whenever something happens, we have to stop for a love scene. And then something immediately happens after that. But the movie doesn't really have a horny or sleazy feel to it compared to the other Milligan joints. This is much more drab. His earlier work and things that came after this, especially like Fleshpot on 42nd Street, are much more driven by sex and sexuality. This obviously is featured in the movie, but it's more of a classic whodunit than anything else. And maybe one of the most stable narratives of Andy Milligan's work. Maybe. Big maybe. Omnia's music cue lets us know that something is afoot. Something bangs outside the door, and Richard swings out to discover a red X presumably painted in blood on the door. And he quickly ventures out to see what the cause of all of this is. On the stairs, he runs into Robert, who thought he saw a shadow or something moving down the stairs. And they venture down together to look around. Or 
just have a drink because that's immediately what they do first. They go have a drink, then they speculate about what's happening, then finally split up to look things over. But, oh no. Donald falls to the ground and we can only assume his brandy was poisoned or drugged. We then follow Richard into the basement where he runs into somebody saying, it's you. What are you doing up? And then we abruptly cut back to Victoria in her room who hears a noise and ventures out herself in an attempt to find Richard, who she finds hanging upside down at the bottom of the stairs and promptly faints. So the film's tone has changed for the sixth or seventh time. We keep bouncing around so many things, it's a struggle to really walk a line of consistency with this, but you manage to keep watching at this point because we have drifted into whodunit, a whole new vibe for the movie that is already chaotic. I mean, up until this point, how could you even really judge what was happening? It seems like a melodrama, then it seems like a Victorian timepiece, then it seems like a thriller, then it drifts into this weird territory with the calling character and he's eating rabbits, he's already killed somebody. We don't know how to judge what we're seeing. There's really not a, a set tone and it completely changes frivolously almost, like like a kid in a candy store. I want this, I want that, I want this to be this way, and I want that to be that way. Andy Milligan consistently changing every single sequence of scenes in this movie. It's so erratic, but it's it's chaotic enough that you can't stop watching it. But I completely understand why people that hate Andy Milligan can cannot get through this, especially knowing that the whole time you can hear the camera humming, and you can hear him giving direction if you listen closely enough. Some people call it charm, other people have disdain for it. Where we're at right now, it doesn't matter. Because presumably, if you've listened to this point, you're in it to win it, you're in it for the long run, so we just have to keep on trucking. And if you've seen the film, you know exactly what I'm talking about, and you either relate to it and understand and see why I have enjoyment with it, or you're just shaking your head and going, this guy's a fucking idiot. This guy's an idiot, Andy Milligan's an idiot, and I have no idea what he's talking about, this movie's a piece of shit. But, you know, I haven't said it isn't. <laughs> I haven't said it isn't. And maybe. I don't know if I'm going to go to the extent of insulting the movie to that level by the time we get to the end of this episode, but it isn't exactly a gem. It's not a diamond. I don't want to call it a polished turd because I think there's a lot more shit, especially recent independent horror films, that are much more awful and much more incompetent than the work of Andy Milligan, which is pretty unfortunate because now making a movie you have access to so many different things especially digital effects you can just buy a camera and pretty much make a movie when Andy Milligan had to do something filming on a 16 millimeter news camera there was a bit more challenges to it so the fact that he was able to get the volume of work out that he actually got out and do the things that he did I find impressive comparatively to people that can just do it now and still choose to make absolute shit but I think we're a little bit off subject aren't we <laughs> Jane Willie's super self of the 80s is brought to you by the Sparrow Star in a shelter in my conceiving and air conditioning. Jay Willie's Super Sounds of the 80s is broadcast live from the Wayne Kerr Mitsubishi Broadcasting Studio in Town, USA. And now, Jay Willie, Super Sounds of the 80s. You're listening to Jay Willie's Super Sounds of the 80s, where we got the beats. 
You were just listening to Death by DVD presents Milligan Madness. <laughs> the Ghastly Ones. An all-new monthly, maybe, segment on everyone's favorite movie podcast, Death by DVD. DVD. After a brief commercial break, we'll get back to the madness. When a massive earthquake rocks the city of Los Angeles, emergency management department head Mike Rourke returns from his vacation to help with the city's response. After geologist Dr. Amy Barnes warns that a volcano may be forming in the sewer tunnels, another severe earthquake unleashes the lava. Rourke and Barnes must figure out how to divert it. Who plays the Los Angeles Police Department Lieutenant Ed Fox who becomes trapped in the story's plot? Is it Keith David? Or is it David Keith? Well, don't look now, but I'm erupting with excitement. Or whatever the kids call it now, because it's Keith David. Thanks for playing another round of Keith David or David Keith. And remember, the Rolling Stones are always and forever better than the Beatles. Rest in peace, Charlie Watts. There will never be another one to carry the beat like you. Until next time, goodbye and good luck. And now back to Hank. The movie repeats itself now, but with different characters. The maids, Martha and Hattie, mirror the discussion between Victoria and her husband, but how their lives they did nothing but care for the girls to apparently very much of a burden. Well, at least Martha feels this way at least. Another shocker rocks the boat as we find out that Colin is Hattie's brother and he has committed some type of atrocity before and that's why they beat him so viciously. Typical Andy Milligan logic. Ah, uh, he's different, so we have to beat him so he doesn't eat people. And that's really how it comes off, and I, I think that's how he meant it to come off. And then Hattie asks Martha if Colin was tied up all night, and Martha tells her that he was chained up in her bedroom all night long. So it just can't be Colin. The killer can't be Colin. It would just be ridiculous to be him. And to remind you, the nonsense murders that the film began with were tacked on after the movie was finished. So I say it's ridiculous Colin being the big baddie because of that. Just simply because of that. It wasn't intentional. He's a red herring character, but because of what we see at the beginning of the movie, we immediately are going to assume that this mischief... Mischief. I think I said shenanigans earlier, too. 
the vicious murders are him. But mind you, none of that was intentional, so just disregard it. So the killer must be somebody else in the house. But who? Who could it be? <laughs> and now, just what this movie needed, some spousal abuse. Veronica, distraught and upset by everything that's going on, rightfully so, is beaten in a dizzying scene by her husband, who is doing it simply because she didn't want to hear any more speculation on the terror. Great. A real mood lifter. Maybe one of the few scenes of senseless action in the movie, and to point out why action scenes just are terrible in an Andy Milligan movie is because this is just what he does with them. I'd rather the endless snarky dialogue over this type of action. And again, this takes us back to misogyny. If the woman isn't a villain, they're going to be treated absolutely terrible in this movie, but it again takes us to another notion that I had referenced. A lot of the avatars of Andy Milligan are the women in his films, so perhaps that might be why they're treated so poorly, him looking inward at himself and reflections of his life and so on and so forth. Back to the movie, no more speculation on Andy. We have so much more ground to cover, I can't just shoot that wad right now. Especially because there's movies it's much more present in that we need to discuss it at that time period rather than right now. Following in a hysterical scene, Donald has the maid swear on a Bible that Colin was locked up during the night, abruptly after the vicious scene previously. Colin takes some firewood up to Victoria's room where he tries to tell her, I didn't! I, I didn't! But Martha swoops in and interrupts before we get close to finding out what he didn't do. But we know partially because I've been talking about it this whole fucking time. So, that might help. I'm not really sure what's happening at this point. It's not clear who's dead or what the fuck is going on aside from some pretty dark shenanigans. Is Richard dead? Who knows. More importantly, who cares? That's right. No one. The answer is no one. Martha tasks Donald with helping Colin chop firewood in the cellar, which is a really weird fucking place for that activity, then gives Donald a big leather belt to beat Colin with because it's the only way he understands, which is just absolutely outlandish and depraved. But this is why you watch Andy Milligan, for those bits of depravity. Also, you watch it for his idea of what chopping wood is, which is sawing fucking two-by-fours with a handsaw in a fucking dungeon basement. I, 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 I don't believe that Andy Milligan had any concept of what this task actually was and maybe had never seen or understood what, what chopping wood or maybe what wood was. I mean, they're just hand-sawing wood in this basement for the fire, and it, it, it's like construction boards. I think this might be one of the most hysterical sequences of the movie that's completely unintentional. They're gonna go down there and they're gonna chop wood, and it's just this guy sawing a fucking board. I, I don't know about you, but there's something really funny about that to me. In the basement, a board is uncovered with a bloody X, but seconds after that, the character is attacked by a creepy hooded figure we've never seen before, but clearly it must have been the creepy shadow seen on the stairs sneaking away. He's tied up and then he's gutted, hacked in two with the handsaw, and let me tell you, it is a delight. It truly is delightful. 
It's not like H.G. Lewis. You don't focus on the gore. You get teased with it by Milligan. But the tease is amazing, because the gore is painfully silly. It's downright goofy, but it adds to the layers of this already painfully silly and goofy movie. Gorsh. <laughs> Something wrong here. Not a single thing is meant to be humorous or light, but the whole movie to me is like an X-rated slapstick horror mashup. And I, I, I relish in scenes like this. Crazy, over-the-top music, probably originally used in some 1940s B-Western movie. And oh, the guy's scream. It beats a Willem scream any day of the week. It's so good. A slice of fried gold. Then it just abruptly cuts back to the maids wondering where the hell he is, and I feel like nothing happens in this movie at all while non-stop things keep happening. And that's sort of the glory of Andy's writing. All this dialogue and then all these quick little teases, it makes us feel like tons and tons of stuff has been happening. Really, it's just been a jumble of talking and close-ups. Andy did everything on his own, so despite how quote-unquote bad it may be, I think he, Milligan himself, is the charm just for doing the work and the volume of work he did. Donald is missing. Elizabeth is now missing, or at least staying in her room as we're told, until her husband returns. But apparently it's completely unreasonable to hold dinner off because people are fucking missing. So dinner is served. No one really is worried, they're just pissed off that Donald is being inconsiderate. It's very inconsiderate to be late for dinner, it's not like Donald to be this inconsiderate. Why is he late for dinner? Shit, it's not like Richard is dead. Or is he? I mean, he was hung upside down on the stairs, so I'm presuming he's dead. But shit, I don't know. I don't think they know either. No one knows. But just guess what's for dinner. It's Elizabeth's head. Now, with only two sisters left, and no way off the island, we now know that this truly is a murder mystery. I mean, it was evident beforehand, but the constant tone changes really made you question what was happening. It seemed like a murder mystery, you want to think it's a murder mystery, but there really weren't any murders happening, and the murder we saw at the beginning of the film has nothing to do with the movie that we're watching, and still, what the fuck happened to Richard? I mean, I'm guessing he's dead, but no one really seems to care, and also no one said he's dead. Yeah, I know, we found him hanging upside down on the stairs, and he the red X on the door. But closure, a little bit of closure would have been helpful. Martha sends William to the attic to help Colin bring down a trunk, a trunk mentioned at the beginning of the movie by the lawyer to be of great importance. But at this point, I would be really, really dubious to do anything that Martha says, get alone to do it with Colin, since someone got sawed in half the last time that she was responsible for activities. After a brief beating of Colin by Martha, they get the trunk downstairs where William decides to go check the basement one last time, because he's a real manly man. As old Willie descends into the basement, the back of his robe is marked with a bloody red X. Dun, dun, dun. So at least we can establish now that he's not the killer. This may be one of the sleekest scenes of the movie. The hooded killer slips from off screen into the shadows behind William and blends into the darkness of the wall, and it's a real terrific shot. Andy wasn't incompetent, by no means. He just had incompetent tools for the job most of the time. William finds a photo in the cellar with 2HC 
my favorite girl from Walter C. inscribed on it. But as usual, before any realization is made, something abrupt must happen. Colin attacks William, declaring the photo mine. It's mine! And then he scampers off before William is attacked again, this time by the killer. Oh, no! This is a marvelous death. Stabbed in the neck with a pitchfork and then gutted, as all the others have been. It's absolutely atrocious. Andy will either impress you, disgust you, or downright make you angry. But he always makes you feel an emotion, and it's just over-the-top ridiculous gore. Martha discovers a very upset Colin hiding, proclaiming, They're mine! They're mine! When Martha asks, What is it? What's yours? He shows her the photo, and suddenly she realizes what is going on. Martha recognizes the man in the photo as Mr. Crenshaw, the girl's father. But who's H.C.? But of course, she says. Then, as usual, what's the Milligan rule? When something happens, abruptly interrupt it with something else. The killer attacks. Oh, poor Martha. Hatchetted. 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 She's killed with a hatchet to death. Colin runs, but the killer pursues and chucks an oil lantern at the poor hunchback, lighting him aflame. Rest in peace, Colin. Now, finally, we unmask the killer. It's Hattie! Why? Because of information never mentioned once in the movie the whole fucking time. That's why. But I'll take it. Hattie, you see, is actually their sister, the firstborn sister whose mother died in birth. Heartbroken, their father left the States only to return five times, conceiving three daughters out of the five trips. But what he didn't know is how his new wife he left behind was treating his first daughter. Oh! She purchased two babies to raise as Hattie's siblings, Martha and Colin, and raised her as if she wasn't part of the family, starving and torturing her, only to treat her nice during the few and far between visits when the husband, their father, would return. Only five times in their entire life. Absolutely evil. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, shit, her means of getting the money was very, very extreme, but now I kind of sympathize. You go through this entire thing, and at the very end, you're starting to lament about what's happening with these characters. Or these characters. With this character. But all that murder and burning the hunchback? Jeez. But Hattie has planned this to a T. It's perfect. She's framed Colin for all the murders, obviously after killing her remaining sisters. But remember, if something happens in this movie, then something immediately has to abruptly interrupt it. And that is Colin isn't dead. He's just burned. He lunges on the stairs and grabs Hattie, who somehow, some fucking how, hatchets herself in the head. Maybe one of the most absurd and extreme horror endings of all time. And I'm talking about shit like Jess Franco, Joe D'Amato, Lucio Fulci, over-the-top extreme gore. This is one of the things to take the cake. How the fuck do you hatch it yourself in the forehead and then manage to fall down the stairs? Because that's what happens. 
Colin and Hattie fall down the stairs with blood spraying everywhere, and this might be the only time, the only place that you could share a comparable reference to somebody like H.G. Lewis and Andy Milligan because there is some arterial blood spray. It gets very, very red here. But like I mentioned earlier, Andy teases. H.G. Lewis would show you the whole thing, and he would focus on the whole thing, and he would really see the gore, the guts, the ooey-gooey nature of all of it. Andy just shows you a little bit of it that moves on to something else. He shows you enough, but at the same time, the way he showed it to you was so decadent. The way to get to this violence was so over the top, it doesn't matter how much he shows you. And that really is a divisive difference between these two gentlemen. One used the gore to exploit, one used exploiting people to be the exploitation itself. That's why... I'm not judging one against the other, but I truly think there is some beautiful cleverness to Andy Milligan that is just never cared about. I think, and this probably will be insulting, it's more or less boring people that don't like Andy Milligan movies. It's people that aren't willing to look past how bad things are. Just because something is shot terribly or written terribly doesn't mean the movie itself is bad or the idea of what the movie is is bad. And for Andy Milligan, I mean, I'm really going on a, a stretch here. A lot of it's bad, most of it's bad, most of it is really incompetent and bizarre, but there is a charm to all of that, and the person underneath that, who we will begin to expose and talk more and more as we get deeper into the dungeon of Andy Milligan, I think it makes this legacy of truly brutality, to make a Misfits reference, somewhat beautiful. Well, beyond somewhat, it really does make it beautiful. And if you're not willing to get past that and look at the art, the art beneath all the trash, I just think you're a little boring. And I know that's insulting. And I understand widely that this is this is not good work. <laughs> I think I've been talking about this movie like it's some average film that you could just sit down and watch and go from point A to point B. And I've really neglected to talk about how wild and chaotic and how just absolutely batshit it's filmed. I've mentioned there's a lot of close-up shots, but again, it's not like your average close-up shots. The framing is upside down, <laughs> sideways, wall-to-wall -wall weirdness. The way Andy Milligan attacked filming a movie is, well, we, we just gotta fucking film it, and it doesn't matter how we do it, we just have to do it. And that is really prevalent in all of his work, because he sat down and had 42 days to do a movie, and would do it in 19, and would take that extra money, and then go make five other things in his house in Staten Island. The guy was a workhorse. We talk about similar guys on the show a lot, Jess Franco, Joe D'Amato, Lucio Fulci, just constant workhorses who produced a, a magnificent amount of movies, a, a great amount of work, and they're celebrated for the work, although a lot of it is bad, a lot of it is tacky, especially guys like Jess Franco, Joe D'Amato. Some of the work is just downright goofy and unwatchable. The difference between them and Andy Milligan, it's really strange when it comes to horror fans and you start talking to horror fans and you start talking to other people on their absolute disdain for him. Like, it's just this forbidden subject, Andy Milligan. That's the worst fucking shit I've ever heard of. There's nothing worse than Andy Milligan. I don't know about that. There is so much, especially in the last 20 years, that is uh, not even difficult to watch, unwatchable. I've spoken about it before, but the works of Lucifer Valentine? Really? People are going to put that over Andy Milligan? Come on. I'd rather watch this seven days a week than somebody puking in a cup and it being some strange backstory about Kurt Cobain committing suicide. Put it in the movie if it mattered. No matter how ignorant 
or backward or stupid the idea was, somehow Andy managed to fit things in his movie, even if it was completely inconsistent to the entire point of the movie, like as we learned with Hattie. Oh, she's one of the daughters. Even though the lawyer made a point to mention who the oldest daughter was and that there were only three, there's no rumor of another daughter, there's nothing, there's no leeway in the story or plot for us to know that this was happening. You could really accuse that of being bad writing at the end of the movie. Oh, here's the ending. We're just going to stick this all in there. Yeah, sure. It definitely is bad writing, but again, it's a lot better than watching somebody puke in a cup for 90 fucking minutes. And I only bring this up because these are the names that you see constantly brought up in the same vein as somebody like Andy Milligan. And I think that's really unfair. I think that's just completely off the wall. Even bringing up H.G. Lewis and Ed Wood, I don't think any of these people are comparable. And I think as artists, all of them are separate on their own. And I have a lot of respect for Ed Wood and H.G. Lewis. I have a, a great deal of respect. I'm an Andy Milligan fan. I like Andy as a human being, despite how controversial and bizarre, uh, whatever you want to say about the guy, you can say about him. And I like his work, no matter how fucking bad it is. And the only reason I bring up somebody like Lucifer Valentine is the absolute comparison between what that artist is putting out and what Andy Milligan put out. Many would be quick to call all of it trash. But the last 12 years of my life, I, I have come to you every Friday talking about trash, talking about exploitation, horror, uh, cinema, whatever it fucking is. With this tangent, this rant comes down to how, I guess, non-articulate so many of my peers, I feel, can be, including people that participate on this program, Death by DVD, when it comes to discussing Andy Milligan and how easily blasé they can just push it away. Ah, that guy sucks. But there is so much garbage that has been discussed on this show, yet alone, compared to this. It, it really confuses me. I think Andy Milligan is somebody that deserves time. I think his work deserves time. I think his art deserves time, if anything, for how esoteric and bizarre all of it is, especially for how the guy made his movies, which the least you could say is unconventional. We have taken a great long segue, again at the end of the show, onto the life and who Andy Milligan is, something that I have stringently said over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again that we weren't going to talk about too much on this here uh, episode. But what do I know? Nothing. Well, clearly a couple things about Andy Milligan, but that's about it. Let's finish this. But this really is the end of the movie. Hattie has hatcheted herself in the head. Her and Colin fall down the stairs. They both die together while the other two sisters scream <laughs> as the doorbell rings. And it's the lawyer because it's the third day and it's the end of the movie. And that's it. That's the end of the movie. And I think that might be the best sequence of the entire film. You get this very graphic death, this, this beyond batshit death. Not only does our big baddie get extinguished, but they somehow manage to hatchet themselves in the forehead, fall down the stairs, and the doorbell rings. That, that whole vibe I wish could have been the whole movie. It's so dubious. It's so it's like a, it's so dubious. It's like a Joseph Losey movie. It folds in upon itself and it's so defeating at the end. I would have loved that vibe, that feeling, that that influence to have been kept up the whole time. It's so sardonic. Ding dong. Oh, it's the lawyer. 
It's like the end of an episode of Friends. Everyone's just gonna clap like, ah. <laughs> and that itself is incidentally funny. And I, I, I've mentioned this before, but Milligan didn't want any humor. None of his work has any influence of humor, and he took everything drastically serious when he produced and made these films. They were all made to be horrifying. They were made to be taken very seriously. And the way it ends, I don't even, I don't know how you could watch this for the very first time after you finished editing it and not think that's hysterical. It's so darkly hysterical. That just doorbell ringing up. I guess it's all over. You could expect some sort of fun-loving full house TV show theme and laugh track to play directly after it. <laughs> It's the end. It's a hoot. It's a real hoot. And with that, that brings us to an end of Milligan Madness. As I've mentioned before, this will be a continuing thing. We'll carry on until the box set is done. You just heard all about The Ghastly Ones, 1967. We've got Nightbirds, The Body Beneath, Tortured Dungeon, Bloodthirsty Butchers, Curse of the Full Moon, The Rats Are Coming, The Werewolves Are Here, The Man With Two Heads, Guru, The Mad Monk, Legacy of Blood, Legacy of Horror, Fleshpot on 42nd Street, Seeds, Carnage, Blood, The Bearded Ladies Wake, and that's it. So we've got a journey to go on, and I'll probably, toward the end of this, include vapors. But I hope with the very first part of this, what I've tried to do, you've enjoyed it. Andy Milligan is such difficult subject matter to talk about, because it, you want to talk about the movie, you want to talk about the art, uh, the, the product, what he had created, but you can't help but do so without talking about him, because you have to explain some of the insane things he did his method his way of making a feature film is is just so unconventional you have to go back onto who he is and some of the things that are featured in his movies and the way he treats women especially which we'll get deeper into as we venture deeper into Andy Milligan is very unacceptable and you can't just talk about these things without talking about why these things happened and i don't want to say that as a defense of misogyny i don't want to paint some picture that, oh, Andy Milligan's just a misunderstood genius. You, you don't get the guy. No, he was fucking insane, and his work is really, for the most part, is incompetent. It is increasingly difficult to get through an Andy Milligan movie, and it's because of how he does these movies. The Ghastly Ones, I really think, is the easiest introduction, and I, I've said this before, it's probably the best place for us to get into this, and it's pretty, I guess you could say, intelligent it being the very first movie on this box set, because as we go deeper and deeper into this, it's going to become much more unholstered and much more harder to accurately tell you what's going on in these movies. And that's what I, I wanted to offer on this episode was, just, let's just talk about the ghastly ones. Let's talk about what happens in this movie and who the characters are and, and maybe, to some extent, some of Milligan's meanings behind it. But I didn't want to begin this whole thing getting too deep and too crazy into theories and backstories and the personal effects of Andy because we have a long way to go. So just like the video nasties A through Z with Death by DVD, which this movie has previously been discussed on one of those episodes before, this will continue about once a month. We'll touch upon Andy Milligan, we'll all meet together, and we'll really 
suffer from Milligan Madness. So until the next time, the ashtray is full and the bottle is empty. If this was your introduction to the world of Andy Milligan, take my hand, we'll go together. I'll do my best. And if you hate him, man, I really hope I can offer something different or some form of insight. Uh, 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 an optional way for you to look at these films. You don't have to like it. You don't have to love it at all. If you watch five minutes of the movie and go, Hank is full of shit, this movie's awful, I don't want to watch it. Hey, we got over a hundred other episodes available on www.deathbydvd.com that you can listen to and enjoy all the same. But for those of you that are going to take this wild ride with me and suffer from Milligan Madness, let's go. Let's do it. I'm excited. I've wanted to do this for a very long time. I think we're going to have some fun. And now, at the end of this episode, I would like to read from Andy Milligan's Venom by Stephen Thrower, presented by Severin Films. In blood-dripping color. There was a time not long ago when the notion of a lavishly restored box set of Andy Milligan films would have seemed like the stuff of a madman's dreams. The benchmark critical response to his work was established in 1981 when Stephen King in his overview of the horror genre Dance Macabre described the ghastly one as the work of morons with cameras. The following year, when Bob Martin's Fangoria published an interview with Milligan, Inseminoid producer Richard Gordon wrote to the letters page declaring, You degrade the quality of the magazine. No way can Milligan or his films be compared with Herschel Gordon Lewis or the Lewis product, which with all its faults tried to perpetuate the honorable tradition of independent exploitation filmmaking that goes back to pioneers like Dwayne Esper and Kroger Bab. Here, it seemed, was a director that even fans of Blood Feast could look down upon. In 1983, when Michael Weldon stated in his otherwise cult-friendly psychotronic encyclopedia film, if you're a fan of Andy Milligan, there's no hope for you. He only not only joined a critical consensus, placing the director firmly beyond the pale, but also extended the judgment to Milligan's fans in a very real sense. Then, the box set that you have purchased is a supreme act of defiance. Again, naysayers, detractors, and gatekeepers of cinematic standards. If you're a fan of Andy Milligan, there's more than just hope for you now. There's triumph. Vindication. Let all those criticize well and gnash their teeth. Ours is the victory. So join me on the warpath to victory. Milligan Madness. Until next time, I'm Hank the World's Greatest, and you'll hear from Death by DVD next week. DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. On the next episode of Death by DVD, we get wild and we Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management 
and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning.